folks, welcome back to another episode of the Christian Hansen Show. I'm Christian Hansen, and this is my podcast. Welcome to it, episode 61. Mike Kaplan, the guest today on the pod, very funny comedian, a smart dude, really engaging conversation. And to be quite frank with you, I wasn't quite sure how freaking engaging this would be. It's been several months uh, since I've done a freaking interview. Uh, I wasn't quite sure if I had the skills to converse at all anymore. Uh, it takes a while to get in it, to get in the nitty-gritty, dive deep in uh, you know, the topics that we talked about. We dove deep into religion, uh, the social and cultural norms within the realm of comedy, uh, just a whole bunch of different things. And it was great. It was engaging. It was over an hour long. I'm going to get right to the interview for you, but uh, it's been great. Thanks for sticking around to the social media. Keep following me. I've lost some followers, but fuck it. Uh, what do you expect when you're not creating content since September? But uh, I'm back, I think. Not quite sure. We'll see how long this lasts. But hey, Omicron may help me. Uh, may fuck a lot of others, but it may help me with the podcast because the biggest issue that I've struggled with uh, and the reason why there has been no episodes is people are just zoomed the shit out. Uh, you know, people have resorted to it uh, for the entire lockdown. They're just done with it. They want to be in the flesh. You know, face-to-face, human interaction. You achieve it on Zoom as well, but there's there's an intimacy in the fact of being in the flesh and conversing in person. You could pick up on signals. You can just... I feel like there's a more engaging element to it. And, uh, but hey, we're back. I'm back. I say we're. It's just me. I don't know why the fuck I say it, but... Anyways, I'm back, and this is the pod. Mike Kaplan, like I said, he's the guest on the pod today for episode 61. You've seen him on The Tonight Show. Conan, Letterman, James Gordon, Seth Meyers, Comedy Central, Last Comic Standing, America's Got Talent, and even my all-time favorite podcast, WTF with Mark Marin. He also has a one-hour stand-up special on Amazon titled Small, Dork, and Handsome, and two podcasts, The Faucet and Broccoli and Ice Cream. And his first album, Vegan Mind Meld, was one of iTunes' top 10 comedy albums of the year. And his newest album, titled AKA, debuted at number one. The New York Times called it invigoratingly funny. I don't know what the fuck that word is, but uh, seems like it was great. Very funny, according to the New York Times, uh, which they included it in among its five best coronavirus comedy specials of the year that came out. 2020 last year but uh man very funny dude very smart dude kind of felt a little stupid uh, most of the conversation i mean he's throwing words at me that i don't even know what he's saying it's just penetrating my 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 brain with knowledge and i'm just sitting there like a freaking idiot just going uh-huh uh-huh so uh it was good man he's a smart dude very funny guy and guess what folks if you are in the chicago land area suburbs preferably or if you live in Chicago, you want to dri- drive to Batavia, you can do that as well. Mike Kaplan, spelled M-Y-Q, and he'll explain the spelling in the interview. Uh, he's going to be at the Comedy Vault in Batavia, Illinois, tonight, through the 1st of January, 2022, uh, Thursday, December 30th. The first show is at 7.30 p.m. That is tonight. Uh, he'll be there tomorrow, Friday, December 31st, for New Year's Eve, 7 o'clock show and 9.30 show, and then... January 1st, 
2022 on Saturday. He'll be there at 7 p.m. Get your tickets now by going to ComedyVaultBatavia.com. That's ComedyVaultBatavia.com. Get your tickets now. Show is 21 and plus, two drink minimum applies, just like all comedy clubs. Go out, enjoy comedy, enjoy this brand new club, the Comedy Vault in Batavia, Illinois. A great club, great comic, just all around fun. But uh, yeah, hope everyone had a great holidays, Christmas, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, whatever the fuck you celebrate. Hope it was great. If it wasn't, I'm sorry. 2022 is around the corner. Hopefully next year's your year. But uh, yeah, without further ado, this is me doing the thing with a very funny man, comedian, Mike Kaplan. Alrighty, man. Mike Kaplan, correct? Did I nail it? You got it. Alrighty, I couldn't tell uh, the the name. Obviously, you 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 play around with it on stage. Uh, you you go by M Y Q. I mean, I'll just start there. Uh, kind of explain explain how that came to fruition. Sure. Thanks for asking. I um, when I was a, a teenager, I think uh, is when Prince, uh, the artist formerly known as the artist formerly known as Prince changed his name to a symbol uh and i thought that that was like weird and cool and i was like i'm gonna do a thing like that i was at a summer camp i was maybe like 14 15 and uh, i was sort of coming out of my shell socially and uh, was in this sort of creative environment and so i was like i'll do something like you know not compared to what he did uh not quite as strange didn't invent a whole new letter a whole new symbol uh just change the spelling for fun uh to be you know a weird little creative kid and uh, then eventually he changed his back because it turned out it was for legal purposes and i was like oh i guess uh i'm just weird and alone now but by that point uh you know it was it was fun to play around with uh with my friends and stuff and i went to college and just kind of kept it as this unofficial unofficial thing and then uh when i started doing comedy uh it turns out uh, you know once you if you have the same name as other people, like there's other Michael Kaplan's out there, there's other Mike Kaplan's out there. If you're going to be like in the union, uh, then like there's a, there was a costume designer that I remember seeing his name in uh, like movie credits, like uh, for maybe Clue and Fight Club and Star Trek and other things. And his name was Michael B. Kaplan, like the same way that, you know, Michael B. Jordan had to be Michael B. Jordan because there's already a Michael, a Jordan. Michael yeah. Jordan, who was, you know, obviously a famous yeah. actor in the movie Space Jam. And so now he's an actor. And so, yeah, so it turns out to be uh, for search engine optimization purposes, uh, practically effective, as well as just, you know, it started at the, as this just weird little thing uh and now you know some of the comedy i do is playing around with you know letters words right. and uh, uh spellings and such so uh it turned out to just sort of you know fire on all cylinders yeah man no that that's interesting now i listened to your special bits and pieces of it uh the one that came out last year uh aka uh i loved it i thought it was really great i had a and this hopefully this doesn't come across to spawning. When I say I had a few really good laughs, what I mean is there's certain comedians, uh, and I'll use Nate Bargetti as an example, who's super, super funny, but he's not a belly laugh generator. He's, but, but he's ridiculously hilarious. That's what I'm referring to as a few really good laughs with, with you. Um, I think the style of comedy um, that you do is kind of, 
it's hard. You don't really take shortcuts and and layer, you know, your content with swear words. You 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 go about it the harder way, uh, and and try to really just stay clean. And I think uh, it's it's quite admirable. That's just based on what I've, you know, consumed. Uh, has that always been the priority for you, or is this just something that you've just always never even thought about? Uh. Thanks for asking. Uh, first, I do I appreciate all of the context uh, in which your compliment is being delivered because I could understand, you know, if if somebody in in a different circumstance, you could say like, "Hey, I listened to an hour of your comedy and there were a few laughs." Yeah. Then that would mean a different thing than you're saying. Like, a lot of work. There were, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, a few of these, uh, you know, a few of these giant laughs, the likes of which yeah. no, some comedians never even see, and all the rest of the time, I'm also enjoying what's happening. I I think I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but I appreciate that. Um, I would say, I think that uh, I did when I was starting out, sort of aspire to be cleaner, uh, to not talk, uh, not use as many swear words, if only for a practical purpose that when you're starting out, you know, you want to get as many opportunities as you can. And there are some gigs that like, if you're, you know, like there's gigs, at, I don't know, synagogues and churches and colleges and like different and obviously TV, you know, like getting on, you know, network television was sort of like the the pinnacle, the dream mm -hmm. when you're starting. And you're like, well, if I, you know, you can't swear on NBC or ABC or CBS or what have you. So it seemed like a practical matter in the beginning to try and like have jokes that you could put on a tape that you could submit to get more opportunities. Uh, and I think there's a lot of people that started out that way. Uh, like I remember Gary Goldman was a guy who I was like looking up to when I was starting and he was at the time like super clean and like now you know his latest special came out The Great Depression on HBO and you know it's there I think at, at this point uh, he and I don't mean to say like that he and I are uh, like I don't mean to speak for him but it seems to me that what he is doing and I think similar what I'm doing we're we're saying the things that are potentially important to us and trying to use the language that best serves, you know, the comedy and the message. And sometimes there may be swears, like on AKA, there's a few places sure. where, you know, there's things that couldn't be said on TV. Uh, and the same for Gary's stuff. Like at this point, I think we all sort of, you know, knew like stand up comedy sort of had this, you know, blossoming phase in the eighties where it was just all over the place. But at that time, like Johnny Carson's tonight show was sort of the biggest show in town. And so that seemed like there was this one, one pathway to, you know, funnel towards to be like, well, that's how, you know, if I get on there, then I can do anything anywhere. All the doors are open. Uh, but now, of course, there's, you know, there's places where you can, you know, like podcasts, of course, and web series and uh, obviously social media. There's all different Streaming. aspects of, you know, yeah, building your own audience wherever, not just the uh, the mainstream conventional like three channels way that seemed like it was the only option before. So it is something that I've thought about over the years. And my goal is like, you know, I mean, at this point, uh, my mom is also a person who like uh, really enjoys watching my comedy and oh, listening wow. to my comedy. And she's a person who like, you know, I'm not going to 
not say something because I think, what if my mom is watching or listening, if it's the thing that I really care about, if it's the thing that I really want to express in the way that I do, but I do sometimes think like, oh, like, is there a way that I can say this that my mom would like and, you know, all of my fans would like, and that is, you know, true to the way that I want to express what I want to express. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's sort of, uh, I, I think that... Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, 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 I got it. I got it. Uh, yeah, I, the, the one that uh, was just, I, I couldn't get enough of was the um, the priest bit about how they sing. You know, it's just basically oh, thank you. talking in my, oh, I mean, you nailed it. Like, I don't go to church, and I want to get on to the religion thing, too. Um, but, I, I mean, I, I don't go to church for, for different reasons, but I, the, when I have gone when I was growing up, I mean, that is exactly how it is. I don't understand it. I don't know how it came to fruition, why it is the way it is. Uh, but that, that was, I, that struck a chord. I was able to re- relate with that. But one thing I noticed throughout just your comedy in general is uh, Judaism and being Jewish and how that is kind of, it's most of the comedy is, is you know, dissected from or rooted off of from that in some way, shape or form. Um, and you, you're quite vocal about it. Now, are you practicing or are you just non-practicing sort of like Mark Maron? He's, he is Jewish, but he is not, he does not practice it. I mean, are you, are you in it? Are you, are you doing the thing or you just kind of build your comedy off of it? Uh, thanks for asking. Uh, so I do talk about it. It's funny. Like, I don't think I talk about it a lot uh, compared to like, you know, there's some people who are more practicingly mm-hmm. Jewish than I am. I yeah. would say that, uh, I actually do, I don't go to temple regularly, except recently, actually, my mom started playing the piano at, as part of the band at her synagogue. So I've gone to see her do that. And so I've gone to, uh, at in, during this calendar year, the past year, I probably went maybe three times, which is more times than I'd gone uh, in any given year since probably my bar mitzvah when I was 13. So like I grew up uh, and there's, I talk about this on stage a little bit that there's ways of being Jewish and then there's ways of sort of doing Jewish or doing Judaism. Like, you know, there's probably, I don't know how you were raised, but I know that I know some Catholics who are like, I'm a lapsed Catholic. They still identify as a Catholic. They're like, I'm culturally Catholic. And so I'm certainly culturally Jewish and I'm ethnically Jewish. You know, if you, uh, I haven't done a 23 in me, but I'm really sure break it, would it come down. Back. Yeah. Yeah, some percentage of that. And so there's ways to be it and there's ways to do it. And so there's people who are definitely doing it more than I am. And like, you know, there's people who might convert to Judaism, like Sammy Davis Jr., uh, not ethnically Jewish, but converted to Judaism. And so in some ways is doing more of the practice. Uh, But additionally, I have one of my best friends is a guy named Zach Sherwin, who is also a comedian, uh, musician, performer. And uh, he grew up, uh, I would say, more practicing Jewish than I. His mother was a rabbi. He went to Jewish uh, summer camp. He tutored uh, students as an adult. As an adult, he tutored students for their bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs and such. And so when I talk to him, sometimes like he shares with me some uh, stories and like studies that he's done on his own or with friends of the Torah, of the Talmud, like 
And then it sort of, it resonates with me in a way that, you know, first, I think anybody can enjoy these stories, can enjoy these uh, like lessons and jokes and things. And then I also separately, I have a good friend who is a practicing Buddhist. And so I wouldn't consider myself at this point a practicing Buddhist, but I really love similarly all the stories and lessons and koans of like the Zen masters and teachers. And so I've read a lot about Buddhism and there's a thing I love that the Dalai Lama says, uh, I believe he said, uh, you know, for Jews be Jewish and like Buddhists be Buddhists. And like there's there's sort of this one, you know, truth, uh, the truth that sort of all religions and all faith traditions and all maybe not even religion or faith traditions like point to that over the course of life, you know, that it, we're all, like, you know, fingers pointing at the same moon or like all different paths up the same mountain. And like the, the commonalities are, you know, kindness and love and forgiveness and atonement and listening and, you know, compassion and being present uh, with, you know, and being who you are and becoming and discovering. And so those are things that when I'm reading these stories in Buddhism and learning about Buddhism, I'm like, oh, that's really nice. And then I'm learning ones about Judaism and it, it's kind of, maybe it has this kind of thing, like when, for me, when I was growing up, and maybe this is true for other people too, like kind of in the beginning, you, you only know what your parents tell you, you only right, know what your yeah. family tells you. And then eventually you kind of like maybe rebel against it or at least get some distance and be like, I'm going to be my own person. Like, exactly. I don't need this. This isn't necessarily what's true for me. And then sometimes people discover new paths and sometimes people eventually come back around and like, oh yeah, like I, I definitely, I, I get it. I like it. Like it's, uh, and so whichever thing that you find, like, I mean, I'm, I'm still on a path. I'm not like, I'm not done learning and growing, but, uh, yeah, I, so I, I would say that there's a joke, uh, that I tell in my act these days, that's something like, uh, a part of it, the relevant part of it is that like, if you are not Jewish, then I'm certainly more Jewish than you. But if you are Jewish, then I might be less, less Jewish, Jewish than you. Yeah. So like, it's, there's a relational aspect to it, but, uh, yeah. And so. The thing that I was, one thing that I was going to say is I don't like, certainly I talk about it more than people who aren't Jewish, but there's a lot of people there's in like a given hour of comedy. I might, you know, I might mention it several times over the course of the hour, but probably it'll take up, you know, uh, not a majority of the work. Like unless I'm, if I'm booked to perform at a synagogue, yeah. it might take up a majority of the hour. But uh, there's, if you're like, it's funny. Sometimes I'll put, uh, you know, I put videos online. Like when I was on Last Comic Standing in 2010, uh, there was a video of mine that like ended up, I think, on the front page of YouTube. And just for a day, it, you know, garnered like tens of thousands of views in a very short amount of time. And I mentioned, you know, being Jewish in the clip. And there were some people that were like, oh, it's all that he's <laughs> talking about. And I'm like, you know, it's like one minute out of a five minute clip. Uh, and so uh, I, I, I do talk about it. I don't practice as much as others do, but I do think that the core tenets uh, of it and most religions, I'll say, without I don't I don't I haven't checked into all religions, but uh, the the aspects of it that highlight love, uh, compassion, forgiveness, and uh, uh, and comedy. Why not? Uh, those are things that uh, you know that I value and uh, and care about. Yeah. No, man. I, great response, but no, yeah, what you said about the newspaper thing, I, that that could be more true because I feel like more. I mean, it's always been there, but I feel like lately, uh, digital print, just media, however it's consumed, however it's distributed, has been an enemy of comedy post 
I mean, that, and not saying post Cosby, but around that time, uh, and right around the time when things went down with Louie and all that stuff. But I do think that the media has been demonizing the art form that is comedy uh, in ways that it shouldn't even be, you know, possible. Um, because like you said, people go, oh, they see one bit and they go, oh, it's all he talks about. Usually that person stopped right there. So they're not seeing that remaining portion of it. And they're just assuming that that's all they talk about. And that's why people get put in these positions now to where they're trying to defend themselves over something that's ridiculous. I mean, it's comedy. It's the art form. It's, it's a stage. It's accepted. It, it's a joke. It's everything done on the stage and, and in that medium is, is for joke purposes. But it has been used as a demonic way of trying to, to shunt and, you know, ruined careers of people just trying to make an, uh, a living uh, in the art of comedy. And um, I'm sure you've seen that, especially, you know, starting on that, you know, East Coast from Jersey, New York comedy. Uh, those people are tough, man. And it's only getting tougher now with, with all these outlets. Have, have you seen um, things affect people within your circle of, you know, comedians that you came up with? Uh, and, you know, is it more of a problem than than most people think right now uh well i great question i the main answer is going to be i don't know because number one i don't know what most people think yeah. and in fact uh i only so i general only society based on just a oh. general assumption because obviously i don't well, know that's... what people think either but you know what i mean oh yeah i mean i, I think it's important to to let let you know i mean you know this yeah uh, both of us, each of us only really has any access to directly what we think, what Correct. we feel, what we know, uh, if we have, you know, and sometimes not even that. But, uh, and general society, I feel like the, you know, especially today in, you know, in the United States of America, like there's, it, it could seem like half of the people think one thing and half of the people think another thing and that there are people who are, you know, coming to the defense of one person, if it's somebody that you agree with, but sure. for the same reasons, trying to uh, silence uh, a person on what seems to be the other side, even though if they're doing a similar thing, like there's, if you're for freedom of speech, then you're theoretically, you, you know, you're for it for everyone, not just the people that you agree with. On the other side of that right. is, I would say, uh, there are, you know, like it is, uh, like freedom of speech is not uh, even in the constitution absolute. Sure. In that like, you're not, you're not allowed to uh, yell, let's, you know, the classic fire in a crowded theater. Right. And, and if somebody's like, you know, being taken off in handcuffs for uh, starting a riot, uh, by doing that. And they're like, Hey, what's my freedom of speech? I'm allowed to like, you're not allowed to, uh, you know, be, uh, harass and threatening. And so there, there are these spectrums. So anyway, getting far afield from your question. Uh, I actually do think the way that you asked, I think that it is happening less than some hmm. people are worried about. Like, I mean, you brought up Louis as an example. He is somebody who, I mean, and let, let me go back to, you brought up Cosby first. Cosby, uh, is not, you know, isn't uh, was the being fault on yeah. that one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Cosby uh, is uh, uh, he was uh, arrested and yeah. imprisoned for assaulting people yeah. for. Uh, and so that is 
not a thing that I think most comedians are like, hey, yeah. we should all have the right yeah. to sexually assault people. Uh, so that's uh, on the, I think, the farthest end of the spectrum that most people can agree with, even there. Correct, I don't want correct. to speak for everybody. Yeah. But uh, Louis is a person who also, I mean, at, at least did like admit to the, the wrongdoings sure. that uh, that he was, I mean, accused of and then uh, accepted. Uh, I mean, not that there were any specific legal consequences to what he's doing, but uh, he also is now nominated for a Grammy. Grammy. So with, with the worry that some people are like, hey, people are trying to ruin people's careers. Like he has his fans and his fans, like they, he has plenty of fans that might be in fact more willing to support him now that there are people who are not willing to support him. And that's ultimately uh, the goal. I mean, the goal of most comedians, uh, I can, again, speak for myself. Uh, my goal is to do the best work that I can, be the best self that I can uh, as a human being as well as a comedian, and sure. then put put all that I can out into the world and then uh, attra hopefully attract as many people who do and or would like the kind of thing that I'm doing. Like, if you don't like me, then uh, then you, I would love for you to not uh, engage with the, the comedy that I'm putting out, the podcast that I'm putting out, the work that I'm putting out, the writing that I'm doing, whatever it is. Like, I hope that, I hope that everyone finds the, the things and the people and the art and the comedy that they love and, you know, support those right. things and enjoy those things because there's so many things possible in the world. And I do think, you know, you there are stories in there are stories in the news there are stories in the media and there's stories in like people's imaginations of like people like you know Kevin Hart was another example of like hey he didn't get to host the Oscars because he tweeted something that seemed homophobic uh, many years ago and it, if I remember correctly didn't specifically apologize for it uh, it was like hey I'm a different person than I was when I wrote that thing and said that thing and it if I had to, I don't know Kevin Hart I don't know what's in Kevin Hart's heart sure. uh but it seems to me that he does not uh actively like uh dislike or uh have a problem with gay people but at a point he did say a thing sure. that i think objectively on whatever level seems uh like it was homophobic and also so so he didn't get to host the oscars like he wanted to and he's also still kevin hart he's still you know uh like an emperor of this kevin hart empire uh, so I think that there's there's very few examples that I've seen where people have said something, quote unquote, gotten in trouble for it, and then it did uh, ruin their career. Mm -hmm. be, uh, and I'd be I'd be open to like, and I, I don't want to speak and and paint with a, the broadest brush because I'm I'm sure that there are examples out there that I'm not aware of or not thinking of. But my my take on uh, on this whole thing is that we, I feel like there are people, there's some people out there saying things like, it's like, you can't say anything anymore. And I'm like, well, you can say that. And, you know, maybe you can't say anything to anyone and have them love it and not say something back to you. And that's also the way that freedom of speech works right. is it's not just you get to talk and nobody else gets to talk. It's that you get to talk and then other people get to respond in, you know, inappropriate environments. Like, 
at a show, if you say something and somebody yells out, then, you know, maybe then security will ask them to leave. And then you keep saying the things that you want to say at your show. And then they can say whatever they want to their friends on their blog, online, wherever, you know, they can start being a comedian as well. Uh, and then they could talk all about you and the things that you said. And then you can keep saying the things and, you know, and then everyone can hopefully find their audience right no doubt absolutely now you've been you've been you've been doing it now for well on paper according to to the interwebs it's been 2005 but really when did when, when would you say was the was the beginning of of uh you know the the journey for you in, in comedy uh, when did when did it kind of cross your mind as far as curiosity goes and who were the guys or gals uh, the comedian or comedians i don't even know why there's two different ways it should be comedian there shouldn't be female comedian it's the stupidest thing i've ever heard in my life but uh who were the people early on that kind of fostered the attention of, of yours uh is kind of getting to to the art form that is comedy uh, sure. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. The, first, the word comedian absolutely applies to people of all yeah. genders and uh, ha happy to see uh, the alternate spellings of it go uh, yeah, the way of. Yeah. Uh, so I there's a couple answers to this. Uh, 2002 is when I say that I really started pursuing comedy. Uh, when I, I decided that I wanted to do it and I was started going out every night as that I could in Boston where I lived to open mics and to shows. And even if I didn't have a show, I would go to shows and like hang out and watch and take it in and read everything that I could about it and listen to like, there weren't really that many uh, podcasts at the right, time, yeah. but you know, I would like, I would read comedians blogs and listen to their albums and just kind of, you know, became a student of it in 2002 in 1999. That's the first time that I ever did perform oh, at wow. a comedy club but at the time I was a, a senior in college I just turned 21 and I was more pursuing music uh, I was I'd been a musician my whole life uh, my parents were music teachers I started playing the violin when I was four and taught myself guitar in high school and started writing songs and some of them were funny and I, like I'd play them with my friends at you know summer camp and mm -hmm. talent shows and uh, at my college uh, campus coffee shop and just like around at music open mics in the Boston area. And once I was 21, I started looking up where I could you know get into bars and places that you had to be 21 to get into to perform the songs that I had. And one of the places that I found was just in this you know pre Google Google type search was a place called the Comedy Studio, uh, which at the time was in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where it's returning to soon after a brief uh, hiatus into Somerville. And so the Comedy Studio, I called them up and I was like, hey, can I perform some of my songs there? Some of them are funny. And they gave me five minutes on like a Thursday night or a Sunday night. And so I would I would play like a couple short songs in like the five minute set that I would get. And in between, I would just kind of talk. And that's what kind of... I didn't really like get into comedy on purpose at the time. Like I was, I found a comedy club because I wanted to play my music and like I had seen comedy. Like I grew up watching Saturday sure. Night Live and Conan and The Tonight Show and Letterman. And the first comedian I ever remember seeing like on TV that I loved uh, was Paul Reiser. I saw, you know, he was from Mad mm. About You. Uh, and I saw him uh, do an hour special maybe when I was like 12, 13. And I loved it. And it, like he was not speaking about any experiences that I was familiar with. Cause I'm a 12 year old and he's like a grown right. married man talking about his life, his marriage, his relationship, owning a home, being in charge of that or not really understanding how to be in charge of that. 
that part I understood. But uh, I got his book, Couplehood, and I got it on tape. And I like when I could drive, I just drove around listening to this book on tape. And so I loved Paul Reiser. But even then, I wasn't trying to be him. I wasn't like, oh, I didn't even know that you could be a comedian, honestly. Hmm. I thought that because all the comedians that I saw growing up were famous people. I thought that comedy was just something oh, that famous people did. Okay, you know, yeah, yeah. Paul Reiser and all the people on SNL. I saw Norm MacDonald's special and when I was a teenager and Dana Carvey and... Uh, and what was the uh, and Seinfeld, of Seinfeld, course, you know, oh, but I'm like, yeah, I'm like all these guys like they're uh, the way that I really thought of it in my head. was like, oh, once you get to be famous and you have a TV show, then you then can, you can start comedian. doing yeah. comedy. But I didn't realize that it went the other way until I was performing at the comedy studio and I saw all these comedians who I'd never heard of, you know, and they were hilarious. Like there's a guy named DJ Hazard and Tony V. And I like was like, wow, who are these these People who are not, you know, on a national stage, they weren't like known around the world. But I was like, they were some of the funniest people that I'd ever seen. And I was like, oh, I guess I if there's people that can that are doing comedy that I hadn't heard of before now, I'm a person that could do comedy right. that no one's heard of. And so I guess th some of those guys were my inspirations, like and also just realizing that I was once I was doing it. Like I was on stage and I would say a thing in between songs that would make people laugh. And so I, I studied linguistics and there's a thing with the, the study of language that people sometimes have a misconception that they're like, oh, so you, you're done. A, or don't, don't correct my grammar. Don't tell me that I'm saying things wrong. And what linguistics is more concerned with is describing the way people do talk rather than prescribing the way people should hmm. talk. It's being like, oh, how do people uh, speak English? How do people speak other languages? How do people speak in different dialects and in different, you know, all there's all these different variables. And so similarly, I wasn't prescribing that I should do comedy. I eventually found out that I was like describing that I was doing comedy. I was like, oh, like, so when people ask me, how did you know? When did you know that you wanted to do comedy? Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, I guess it was a little bit after I started doing comedy, unbeknownst to <laughs> me. And so it was really the pursuit of being a musician, being a singer-songwriter that brought me to comedy, that, that made me realize that I could do it, that I was doing it, that I wanted to do it, and that I was sort of then started learning how to do it. Interesting. Wow. That's crazy. So you said uh, mom and dad, the folks, they, they, they were in music too. You said they taught it. What, what, did they, what, what kind of teachings did they do? What, what, what did they do? Sure. Thank you for asking. Uh, I would say they, when I was growing up, my mom taught at a bunch of different elementary schools. Uh, so she taught like elementary oh, music. Wow. Her main instruments were uh, like the trombone and the French horn and like various other like wind instruments. My dad was a high school band director as well as he taught private lessons in our home. He taught mainly uh, clarinet, saxophone, and flute. My mom these days still sometimes teaches piano wow. lessons now that she's retired from school teaching. Uh, so, yeah, so I guess we had, we always had, you know, there's always instruments and musicians sort of coming around through the house. And so I, I, mine was violin for the most part until I picked up the guitar. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that was what my parents were doing. My dad actually uh, took a high, well, my parents divorced when I was around 13, 14. Oh. And uh, my mom continued to be a music teacher. My dad, uh, left music teaching for a while and just, uh, he still worked in education, uh, but just he taught technology and then he was sort of like a career counselor or, 
at, at various colleges as well. And he married a woman who's a math teacher and he taught math sometimes as well. Holy but cow. he also, like I mentioned, my mom in the past year or so just started, joined uh, the synagogue band, the synagogue Bima, Bima band. The Bima is the stage. And then my dad also in the past year or two or a couple of years has uh, separately, like my parents aren't together anymore right. and they aren't, you know, coordinating this. But my dad, uh, you know, his wife is Catholic and he started, you know, becoming a part of this church community. And they sometimes have music at their services. And he started, you know, picking up the the clarinet again and the flute again. Wow. Now he also so both of my parents are now uh, involved in music. Uh, not teaching specific. I mean, that is now teaching private lessons again as well. But they're also performing uh, as well, uh, both in their sort of you know religious uh, services. Wow, that's crazy. So uh, just to kind of go back in the beginning, as I just kind of you know yeah. process all the information to go back to what you said earlier. You said that you haven't really practiced or you know been into to the religion since your bar mitzvah. So that would be right around the time your 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 folks separated. Then correct? That is right. Okay, so what? Was it, what about, was there resentment with the, just the, the faith? Well, what was, what was the separation just drew you from the, what happened there that, you know, obviously, well, I know what happened. They got the oh, sure. but what was the, the main factor is what pulled you out of that, that thing? Uh, good question. And sort of, I think that it may be, I mean, and I, this is a, a good point that, that, that those things happened around the same time, chronologically speaking. I don't know if they are, if there is a causation, mm -hmm. because here's the thing is, uh, I got my bar mitzvah uh, when I was 13. And that was sort of uh, the plan. Like my, my family didn't regularly ever really like, you know, we didn't go to services oh, as a family okay, okay. every week, you know, maybe we would go, uh, there's a, there's no, a Jeff Ross joke that I like oh, that I saw a long time ago. That was something like, uh, my family, we were Jewish, but we weren't that religious. We only went to synagogue twice a year on Christmas and Easter. And so, uh, for me, for my family, like we would go, uh, sometimes for what they call the high holidays for, you know, the, the Jewish new year, Rosh Hashanah for Yom Kippur for Passover, maybe when I was a kid, but it, it was the kind of thing, I remember my mom saying this to me once, and then I remember her telling me that she didn't exactly say this, but my memory <laughs> is uh, that it was something like this, that my, she was like, I wanted you to uh, have Judaism in your life just to make sure that like, if we didn't give you any religious foundation, that you wouldn't uh, have a hole in your, you know, spirituality that you would then go out and seek to fill with like a dangerous cult, sure. for example. And uh, and so I remember, but music was actually more of the religion in my household in this way, and probably possibly even still to this day, I would say, but when I was growing up, like I, you know, again, I think I started going to uh, Hebrew school and Sunday school, like to, and then to learn, uh, take lessons for my, mm -hmm. you know, bar mitzvah studies between the ages of probably like, you know, eight or nine and 13. So it wasn't like from very early childhood and it didn't go beyond that, but music lessons started when I was four. And then a couple of years after that, I would every Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, go, my mom and or my dad would take me into, we lived in New Jersey, would take me into New York City and go to these like music programs once a week, every week that I was there kind of all day taking, uh, and sometimes on, it's sort of a, the parallels to religion uh, logistically happen here as well, where 
for music, I would have my violin lesson privately every Monday night. And then for a time, I would be a part of a quartet that met every Wednesday night. And then this every Saturday, I would have these master classes, theory lessons, orchestra, other small like chamber groups meeting. And that would be Saturday. And then for religion, I would go either Saturday or Sunday morning uh, to learn about sort of Jewish history. Then I think uh, I go to like either Monday or Wednesday afternoon to learn Hebrew. And then additionally, wow. Monday or Wednesday afternoon, whichever one it wasn't, would be the additional specific private bar mitzvah lessons. And so my mom would always say like, I mean, I, I had a choice as to whether I wanted to have a bar mitzvah or not. And it was sort of presented to me like, if you want to have this party, if you want to get these <laughs> gifts, then you have to take these classes. Right. But for violin, for music, for that part of my education, uh, that was something that was not, it was, my mom said that she offered me like when I was four, she's like, what instrument do you want to play? Not even, do you want to play an instrument? She's like, essentially music is the thing that is the most important uh, in our home for, she's like, essentially she loved it so much. My parents loved it so much. It was their life, their livelihood, the thing that brought them, you know, meaning and value and purpose. And like, so I feel like there's so many things that make that religion is that for so many people that parents might want their children to love the things that they love. And sometimes it ends up that your children love different things, but kind yeah. of that you love anything is the point that you love something that you love something creative and connected and resonant in life. And that helps bring you and or others, you know, joy, peace, calm, you know, something, some meaning, you know, fulfillment, uh, engagement, connection to, to other people, to a community, to yourself, to the universe. And so for, in our family, it was uh, music that did that. And I'm sure I'm, we're not alone in that, but just right. music is such a, a beautiful, powerful, you know, resonant, mysterious, you know, force in the world. And so to answer your question, uh, I think we stopped going to, t there, there were so many things that happened when I was 13, the bar mitzvah happened. And we're like, that was sort of like the end of the line. Okay. Yeah. You're officially Jewish stamped and, uh, you know, signed, sealed, delivered, uh, a music. And <laughs> then we also moved before me, my parents got divorced. We around when I was 12, 13, we moved. And so we no longer ah. lived near that synagogue, near that community, but we're like, well, you know, we're kind of done with that. Uh, for now as well. So yeah, it wasn't that there was a specific like disillusionment. It wasn't that the divorce, you know, made me say like, there is no God, you right. know, at that point it was, I'd sort of just been going in a way through them. I think, I feel like for most children, I can, I again, can only speak for myself sure. as a child, I was going through the motions. Like I didn't feel any That's great me. connection to the, you know, to the, the vast, you know, thousands of years of Jewish history and all the people that had come before me. It wasn't until, you know, like years later when, you know, I, I went to a Holocaust memorial mm -hmm. and had even then like a, a sort of ineffable and indescribable experience of like, I was sort of overwhelmed and overcome and like emotionally moved. And because it's, it's very difficult to understand, you know, things that are larger than our own experience. Exactly. But there are, I mean, thankfully, you know, people who are communicating these ideas, you know, uh, journalists, artists, writers, uh, people who are expressing, you know, historians like, their truths and the truth of the of the experiences that you know 
are beyond our own like individual incarnations, limited capacity. But uh, yeah, I feel like children, uh, you know, don't. It's it's nice to teach. It's it's good to teach children uh, about the world, about belief systems, about uh, you know all the things that are important uh, to the adults teaching them. But it doesn't. It doesn't often. I feel like for me, there were so many times when later I was like, you know, it, the seeds were planted, but they didn't really grow and fully right. kick in until much later in life when it kind of more seems like you are getting to decide, uh, you know, what the things are, what the, the activities are, what the experiences are, what the systems are that you find useful and meaningful and joyful yourself. Uh, because, you know, as you, when you're a kid, you're so like sort of just, you know, bounced around by whatever the adults decide in your life uh, are, are important for you to do, but eventually, I mean, hopefully they offer you some, exactly, you know, some yeah. agency, some legitimacy, uh, earlier on as well. Uh, but eventually when, when you're quote unquote, an adult, which, you know, who knows when that happens, when that kicks in, it still seems like it's a gradual becoming process, but eventually, uh, an individual hopefully gets to decide or realize or discover or describe, uh, the things that are important to, that person. No, man. Well said. So then, uh, linguistic. So I, did it ever cross your mind to pursue like a Berkeley or pursue music as the, as the, the main focus, because that was just based on the, the background and just, just music heavy, uh, you know, environment that you grew up in that seemed like a curveball based on just everything was, was, was that the sole focus? I mean, at, at that time in your life or was music right there as well, as far as pursuing with that degree? Uh, a good question again. Thanks for asking. I, so when I was in high school is when I started teaching myself guitar and I was at, and I loved it. Like when I, when I was playing the violin, I was made to, you know, I, it was like required. Sure. And so that's what was less fun about it at that time. Ah, point. that makes sense. And, and so the summer camp that I went to where I did actually, you know, meet a, a friend whose guitar was the first one that I played. And this summer camp, like, it, it was basically, it was called Bucks Rock. And it was founded by a man named Ernst Bulova and his wife, Ilsa, hmm. in the 40s. Uh, and he had studied with Maria Montessori. And I don't know if you're familiar with Montessori schools, mm -hmm. but the way that they operate is essentially to have like the children uh, help direct like what this field of study is going to be, not just a set curriculum for everyone because every child is different. Every Absolutely. child will have different strengths and interests and desires. And so the way the camp worked was uh, there were no assigned, you didn't have to go to anywhere in particular at any time. There was just nine to 12 and two to six. The shops were open. You could go paint all day. You could paint for five minutes, then do pottery. You could do some things you had to sign up for if there was like limited, you know, like for glass blowing, which they had, there were like, you know, only four people could glass blow at a time. So you sign up in the morning and be like, I'm gonna show up at two to do that. And if you wanted to be in a play, you had to show up to when the rehearsals were. If you wanted to be in the orchestra, you had to show up when the orchestra met. But otherwise, for just the individual things, you just, you couldn't do nothing. You weren't allowed to do nothing, but you could decide what you wanted to do. And Ernst, the founder, he had said, I remember him saying this once, um, 
that he said, I don't know if he said children, I think he said children, but I think it means people as well. He said, children don't like to be taught, but they do like to learn. Mm. And so that's sort of that aspect that's of true. prescriptive descriptive, whereas like if somebody tells you what to do, even if it's something that you were going to do, there might be like a little resistance and be like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to do what I want to do because I want to do it, not because you're telling me to do it. And so, uh, that's why the guitar for me was so like beautifully freeing because it was not something somebody was telling me to do. It was something I was deciding for myself that I wanted to do, just playing around with it. And it was beautiful because if I hadn't been playing the violin, I wouldn't have picked up the guitar so easily. Mm -hmm. Like guitar is much easier to pick up if you've already played a stringed instrument sure. like the violin. But I, so I was ultimately grateful that I was made to play the violin and learn all the theory that I did that made the guitar so easy to learn and so joyful to just play and not even consider it practicing. And so there I am, 15, 16, 17, loving the guitar, eventually uh, getting to... Uh, when I got to college and when I was deciding what I wanted to major in, I uh, your question, I answer in this way, I actively decided to not study music because I wanted to not have music be a thing that I had to do, mm. to not have assignments that, to not to have it only be a thing that I was choosing to do, that I was loving to do, that I was getting to do, not having to do. Uh, and so like I took, uh, I, I joined an acapella group. I joined a chamber choir for several years. I took uh, private mu uh, private singing lessons because I wanted to get better at doing it. And over the summer, I became a music counselor at the camp I was at and I helped lead acapella groups and like, you know, play violin in the orchestra and lead sectionals there and teach guitar lessons and sometimes teach violin lessons. So I wasn't as, uh, I feel like, uh, confident in that. But the overall, the the reason that I didn't like want to go to a music school was because I didn't want to have that be put upon me in ways, even if I was asking, I'm like, well, teach me. And then they're like, well, now you have to do this. My girlfriend, in fact, did go to Berkeley. She was similarly wow. like a singer songwriter in her teenage years and want and chose to uh, follow the path of going to a music school to study music. And what part of the experience that she had there was slightly uh, disillusioning because there were ways uh, there were things that were being taught and like methodologies of the way to be a musician at Berkeley or in the particular classes she was taking that were like sort of, you know, uh, pushing people in one direction uh, as opposed to, you know, allowing uh, the person to, again, direct to sort of their own, you know, their own choices, their yeah. own destiny, their own, uh, you know, making, you know, becoming the person that you are rather than the person that somebody else uh, is sort of instructing or uh, trying to make you into. Yeah, no, that that uh, that's that's wonderful because I know I'm a huge fan of John Mayer, and he said the uh, the same thing about that, and that's why he kind of left it. He goes, it was very disillusioned the the idea of uh, being at a place teaching everybody there who wants to become what you want to become, teaching them the same thing. There was an, there was there was no room for. Uh, self-evolvement and you know branching out creatively in the classroom you were all doing the same thing and uh it, it's it was the same yeah same I, I can't remember the quote but he he touched on the same exact thing that you just mentioned which is uh interesting it, to kind of go off of what you said of uh the quote i forget who it was of 
uh, children don't like to be taught. They like to learn. Is that, that's how it was phrased? That's true because, uh, and that actively goes back to me and why, I mean, I don't go to church, but it was the same thing for so many years. You're just told that, oh, on Sunday morning, I guess I got to go to the Catholic church, whatever. This is just what I told. And then after a certain point, I'm like, I don't, do I, I don't have to go. Oh, okay. So I won't go. And it was, there's nothing bad about church there's nothing bad about the religion to be quite frank i don't know much about it um which is part of the reason as to why i don't want to actively seek it because i feel like that'd be a waste of time and that goes back to when i graduated high school i fell into the trap of well gotta go to college because it's that's next and i wasted 2500 to three thousand dollars for two years at a community college and i didn't apply myself i didn't do anything i said I don't have to do this. I'm gonna wait. I waited three and a half years, and then when I was ready to say I actively want to learn, I actively want to go to school, I did, and I had the best two and a half years of my life. So that is very true. But as a society, that tends to, we tend to fall in this trap where we go, oh, well, what does the book say? There's no book, but there's a book, and that's usually you, you find you discover that either it's not gonna work or it's gonna work. Uh, but that's true. That's a great quote. I absolutely love that. So you started doing that comedy. Uh, what would you say was the first city wise? Would you, would you classify yourself as a Boston or a New York? Uh, I started in Boston. I was in Boston for school. And yeah, I would say that Boston was my you know first comedy home. And uh, I mean, I've lived in New York now since mm-hmm. 2008, so which is longer than I lived in Boston doing comedy. Yeah. But uh, I still love returning to Boston. Uh, it's one of my favorite cities. I'm really glad I lived there and started doing comedy there and met a ton of uh, wonderful other comics there. And uh, yeah, so I would say, you know, sort of the same way, like, you know, if you're born somewhere, but then you're raised somewhere else more, it's like, where are you from? I'm like, I'm from all these places. Like yeah. I'm, I grew up in New Jersey. I be became an adult and lived my uh, initial adult and my baby comedian life stages in Boston. And, uh, and now I live in New York. So I would say I am a, a New York and Boston and New Jersey comedian and human. Yeah, well answered. That's funny though that you say it because uh, Dave Bargetsy, one of my favorite comedians, also he would classify himself, he'd say Chicago, New York, comic because that's where he you know that's where he would consider his origin but he had a he had a joke about that where uh i mean when he moved to new york he was in new york around the same time you were so oh yeah, yeah. Giannis, he's a, he's, he's a buddy Love yeah him, yeah uh, and they has a joke where when his daughter harper was born he made sure that they flew back to nashville so she could get born because she didn't want her to think that she was better than him being i was uh-huh. born in the, oh, and that's yeah. a great joke he's like no we are from the deep we are deep part of tennessee we're not i'm not gonna make you think you're better than me but uh no, that's great so those are the guys you came up with then you say in new york would it be Giannis, the joe list the morales nate uh yeah i i would say like in boston joe list and i were starting out right oh, around yeah. the same time mm-hmm. and then also uh shane moss and then josh gondelman uh, a couple of years later and uh, I mean, there's ton- tons of people, tons of wonderful friends, uh, Aaron Judge and Kelly McFarland. And like, you know, it sort of starts out like the same way, you know, when you're like in, I don't know, when you're seventh grade or something mm-hmm. and a sixth grader seems really young and an eighth grader seems yeah. really old. Like when you start doing comedy, you know, you 
like the people who started like three months ahead of you seem old and the sure. people who start a year later, you're like, wow, they're babies. But then, you know, when you're five, 10, 15, 20 years in, you're like, oh, there's like comedians who've been doing it 10 years longer than you. They're like, I guess you're my peer. You're my friend. And there's people who have been doing it 10 years younger. And you're like, oh, you're also, you know, we're all, you know, in this sort of community in this, uh, uh, this sibling uh, kind of situation in this in this family, uh, and not to, you know not to say that everyone feels that way, and you feel the closest to everyone, much like perhaps a biological family. But uh, yeah, then when I moved to New York, uh, it, it seemed it feels like sometimes like when I started out in Boston. Also, I feel like John Fish was a guy who was sort of like a, a comedy older brother, and Gary Goldman was like a comedy. <laughs> older brother and then Gondelman was like a comedy younger brother and then you have sort of your you're you're like oh eventually you're kind of like we're all this big mishmash together uh but yeah then when I moved to New York it's it, New York is kind of like you know a much uh, a much larger more spread out yeah. disparate scene like the Boston comedy community was like a a tight-knit thing like once you, if you're doing it a couple of years in Boston you'd kind of get to know everyone you kind of meet everyone and maybe you see some people more than others but New York you could I've I've been doing comedy in New York for you know 13 almost 14 years now and there's probably still some New York comedians some people who've been there as long as I have that I haven't met haven't been on shows with uh just because there's I mean there's probably thousands of people doing comedy in New I, I couldn't even make it maybe it's less than that but that would be my guess of if you count all the people who are performing in comedy clubs uh, in any given month or year, my guess is it's thousands of people. And there's a, I think it's, I forget if it's called like the Dunbar number, something like that, uh, where it's like human beings really only have the capacity to understand and be connected to and be close with about 150 people. Like wow. beyond 150 people, it becomes like more theoretical, you know, and you're not, you know, Acquaintances. the amount of time you have in a day, you can't be close with, sure. uh, you know, some people only have like one good friend or a couple. And then you have like, you know, tiers and hierarchies going out and you're like, oh, there's people. If I, if I see him, then I, then I say hello. And there's some people that I talk to every day or every week or every month or once a year. Uh, but yeah, it's the nice thing about doing one nice thing about doing comedy is that once you've been doing it for a while, like then wherever I go, I'm like, oh, like I, I'm in Kansas City right now at my girlfriend's mom's house. And I came here for the first time in July of 2021. And I performed at the comedy club of Kansas City. And the other two comics who were booked uh, to open uh, was a guy named uh, Ty Clay was featuring. And then Evan Christian Golt uh, was hosting. And like, they're both uh, like... I feel like they became immediate friends. And then there were people getting guest sets around the weekend. And I'm like, oh, those are like people now that I know, like on social media. And if I'm coming through town, like maybe I'll see them at, you know, a show or a comedian party or a gathering. Or like I got invited to like Evan invited me to his girlfriend's mom's pool party when wow. we were here over the summer. And it's just it's sort of like in a way, instant community, which kind of goes back to the and when I was talking about the way that you can be Jewish and or do Jewish, like there's a kind of way of like being and doing comedy, like doing comedy is one thing, but being a comedian is this other thing that you're like, oh, now I'm part of this community, part of this network, part of like, oh, I'm coming to this town. Where does the comedy happen? And you can meet people and 
sort of like the same way that, you know, you might have an old friend that you catch up with once every however many months and you just pick up right where you left off. And sometimes it's kind of like when you meet a comedian that you've never met before, but you're both comedians and maybe maybe you follow each other on Twitter yeah. and you're like, oh, you're this comedian. And you kind of pick up where you had never left off before, but you're like, oh, we, we speak the same language. We're in the same community. We share the same comedian culture and or the the subculture of comedy that like you know there's there's some there's definitely some comedians uh, i'm friends with a lot of comedians and then there's some sure. comedians that i'm not friends with for uh for reasons that make sense like there's uh i love i love people and also i love some people different than i love other people you know yeah no absolutely well that's the same thing like i'm not a comedian by any means i just love comedy and i just immerse myself into it however i can whether it be doing photos at a club that you'll be at this week. Uh, this episode drops this Thursday. That's the first day at the vault in Batavia. But uh, whether it's being there, Zany Chicago, Zany's Rosemont, just immersing yourself there and being around, being a presence at the place. Eventually, like, you you could have conversations, deep conversations about someone's family and then still not even know the person's name that you're talking about. But it's just because, oh, yeah. like, oh, he's oh, there he is again. He's like, he's just he's gonna be here. He's hanging around. I don't know his name, but and you have, and then you're like, oh, what's his name? It could be five months after you start talking. To the, so yeah, it's definitely, and that's what I like though, because uh, I mean, for me, I've always been very, uh, very closeted, like socially. I like the pandemic didn't affect me really until like nine months in i'm like okay maybe i need i miss talking to some people so like it didn't really affect me in ways but i saw how it affected people within the arts i mean stand-up i mean you, you can't have content without you know experiencing life i mean you people get sick of covid jokes immediately so it's uh yeah so it's uh it's been great i mean comedy's opened that avenue for me and it's helped me develop something that i've really struggled with which is just socializing in general and uh it's been great like last week uh or a week and a half ago we had ben moore uh at the great comic he was at the the comedy vault in tavia i mean i have 45 minute conversation i'm like i've never met the guy never seen his comedy but it was just you know you just i don't know what it is but it's just it's an amazing thing about not even just with comedy, but just immersing yourself within a community, whether it be evolving around sports, uh, charities, or something like that. You could just have that type of thing. And never speak to them again, but you could just have that. Oh, it's just it's just absolutely great. So you're on the road. You're well, right now you're in Kansas City. You'll be at the Comedy Vault in Batavia this week. Um, I mean, how's it been getting back out there and doing the thing post-craziness? We're not allowed to talk about COVID. We all know what's going on. We all hate it. No one likes it. Uh, but... What has it been like getting back in the clubs? I mean, I've you're seeing guys like even like Seinfeld up in New York saying comedy's never been funner uh, because of you know going through something that everyone went through uh, as just horrifying as it was, and then just getting back out there and doing it again. It uh, he 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 said it's almost like starting from the beginning and how it feels good to just be back in a club. How has it been for you? Yeah, you know. Uh... That all resonates, that all tracks. And uh, here's an analogy that I hadn't thought of specifically like this until now, but um, you know how sometimes if you put your hand under like uh, room temperature water, mm -hmm. and then if you put it under, uh, oh, sorry, if you put it, let's say you put your hand under cold water, sure. then you put it under room temperature water, it'll feel warm. Sure. But if you put your hand under hot water, then you put it under room temperature water, it'll, it'll feel, feel cold, cold because it's about the relation. And so I feel like we've all, you know, throughout, 
when the pandemic began, we were all like, will live comedy ever come back? What will it look like? How will it be? What will life be like? There's so many unknowns and uncertainties. And so it was like we were all in this cold water bath, you know, in of this, you know, horrendous situation uh, that many people have died and been impacted by in so many ways. And that now that there are vaccines, now that there are capacities to feel safer and hopefully be safer moving forward, and now that there is live performance again, it's like even just returning to the exact same temperature water that we were in before, mm -hmm. after that that cold uh, shower of you know fear and uh, potential isolation, like now it feels warmer. And I've always thought about like getting to do comedy, like ever since like since two thousand eight, I haven't had to have any other jobs aside from oh, comedy, amazing. and I've been very grateful for it. And Whenever I tell people that, you know, who aren't comedians and even some who are comedians, like, isn't it, it feels good to remember, like, they're like, oh, isn't that wonderful that you get to do the thing that you love? And I'm like, it is wonderful. And it, it reminds me of like, sort of a thing I've thought about is like, it's kind of like getting into a jacuzzi, you know, like into a nice hot tub. And it's like, oh, wow, this is exactly where I want to be. And whenever you get into a hot tub, if you stay in it long enough, then it just becomes the norm. You're like, oh, right. this isn't, it doesn't feel the exact same as getting into the hot tub. But if you like lift yourself out of it and then put yourself back in, that's what those moments of like other people, seeing it through other people's eyes, uh, like sort of induce this like, uh, you know, added gratitude that I aim to, I strive to like feel and express all the time whenever possible. But it's like, oh, it's like, oh, I like, it jostles me. And I'm like, oh, I'm like out of it and then back in it immediately. And so it's sort of like that. So I, I do feel like, getting to perform like i mean there still is obviously like we're not you know everyone that's alive probably will die <laughs> uh, at some point of something for some reason and that right now like we still don't know like what the current variant will do and oh, whether there'll crazy. be future variants and whether there'll be no more vaccines more boosters more whatever it might be so there is always i mean there's always a sense of in buddhism they say something like uh, next breath not guaranteed next <laughs> lifetime guaranteed but the idea like we have these ideas like the book of life that you were talking about earlier which i understand like if i have in my mind that like i'm gonna live into like my late 80s oh, or yeah. 90s like we project ourselves into futures and everybody who you know who dies also probably was doing yeah, that it could in end right some now. way it absolutely could. So every every time that we do get another breath is, you know, a blessing of a kind, whether you're religious or not. It is, uh, it's, a, there are things about life that I value so much that I'm I'm grateful for to experience this, this joy, even amongst, and perhaps in, in part because of all of the uncertainties and all of the hardships and all of the challenges and all of the, the sickness and possibility thereof. Like I recently had an experience where uh, like my girlfriend is actually uh, not feeling well right now. And oh we're boy. like, is it COVID? And I had a day where I was experiencing some things that I was like, oh, I have a little bit of a fever. I have, uh, you know, my head hurts. I, I don't feel great. And so we got COVID tests and like they're not obviously 100% accurate, but sure. came back not detected. And so we're like, but do do we, will we? It seems like at some point so most people will but the fact that i'm like i know before the pandemic happened and there were i had to cancel so many shows mm. and that became well that's that's what happens now i don't do shows regularly and so now getting back to a place where i'm like 
uh, I'm sort of where halfway between where I was before and during where I'm like, I'm, oh, I am aware that I might not, that the shows that I have scheduled for a month from now or two months from now or seven months from now might, uh, might not happen because the future is uncertain. The future isn't real. The only thing that is real is what's happening right now. So anytime that I am on stage performing, uh, now I ha I do have an additional like added gratitude component for it because I understand like how it, it's not guaranteed. It right. might not. Oh, it won't always be. It wasn't always like even like there was a year and a half where it wasn't really at all. And so, yeah, I feel uh, both, you know, sort of continuing like, like, you know, following how, how anxious and concerned it makes sense to continue to be, to be as safe and healthy and keep everyone else as safe and healthy as possible, as well as then while it's happening, uh, you know, enjoying, uh, enjoying uh, it to the max. Absolutely, man. And real quickly, I want to talk about this because I know you, you worked with Louie uh, on his, he had his own show. Uh, new special came out. Uh, it's great. Uh, what has it been like? Uh, I mean, I don't know if you talked to him still or whatever, but um, what was that like, it, being able to get that opportunity to work with him? Just crossed my mind as I was thinking about his special. Sure. Thanks for asking. I mean, I have not talked to him in quite a while since uh, I, I actually... That's wrong. I've seen him because he he stops around the comedy cellar mm. when he's in New York, and so I saw him uh, some months ago when we were both there, sort yeah. of in passing. But like, I haven't had an extensive conversation with him since, really, you know, before uh, the, uh, the, the allegations yeah. that the the uh, that he admitted to yeah. uh, came out, and so it is. I remember, and like he and I weren't, you know, the closest of friends. Sure. I remember seeing. Like Sarah Silverman, who was like a really close oh, gosh, friend of his, yeah, yeah. and and maybe I don't know the extent of their relationship at this point, but I remember when when it when all this when all the news was happening, you know, twenty seventeen or yeah thereabouts. Uh, I remember seeing her like come forward with real conflict, like because she's like I you know she's like I love my friend and I also you know hate the things that he did, mm -hmm. uh, like you know that the the victims the people who who's now had their whole lives potentially right. their careers impacted like that's to go back to the the question of like people's careers you know impacted or ruined in ways like there are people who who might have quit doing comedy uh, and i think who did you know, sort of have their lives and careers impacted by actions that were taken right. uh by louis for example and so all of those things, like it's not one thing or the other. It's not like, you know, is somebody uh, purely a villain? Is somebody purely a hero? I mean, to answer your question, at the time, before all of this was, you know, publicly known, uh, it was, of course, a great joy to get, you know, an email or a phone call from Louis or a person uh, who worked for him or with him and was like, hey, do you want to, you know, open for him this weekend? Do you want to? come down to the comedy cellar and be a part of this show that at the time everyone was like, you know, it was beloved. And so, yeah, I mean, it was at the time, it felt like an honor and a privilege and now it feels more complicated. And uh, like, I, I resonate with what Sarah Silverman expressed in that it's hard, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to contain the ambiguity, but that's what has to be, sure. that's what has to be contained. Like, it's not a, it's sort of, you know, like the question of, 
this would get into a much larger conversation, but <laughs> the way that, uh, you know, in our society, in America today, you can, you can both uh, love the country and also be deeply uh, ashamed of the, you know, of slavery, for example, okay. of of the way and the fact that white supremacy to this day continues to uh, manifest in inequality uh, between, like, like that. It's not, it's not done. It's not over. It's not gone. And there's an there's an aspect of some people who are like, get. It's a long time ago. Come on, get over it already. Didn't didn't we? But without there being like a full, uh, comprehensive, you know, reckoning where everyone is like taken care of like i guess one final point i guess i'll add is that one of the things i love about buddhism is that uh the goal for most for many buddhists uh as i understand it is to help increase uh the happiness and decrease the suffering of all sentient beings that the definition a definition of love in buddhism is often could be said to be Love, when you love someone, you wish for their happiness to increase. And when you have compassion for someone, you wish for their suffering to decrease. And that would be, that's the goal for, uh, for, for Buddhists, for everyone, for every being to have only happiness in the roots of happiness and don't have suffering in the roots of suffering. And my friend Gus one time, uh, who is the practicing Buddhist who I learned the most from and with, he told me that uh, somebody had died, like mm. a politician, and he didn't really know who they were. So when he found it out, he said to his the person who told him, he was like, oh, that's a shame. And they said, oh, no, this was actually like a very homophobic, racist politician, so it doesn't have to be a shame. And he said, oh, I guess, I guess then I would say it's a shame that they didn't live long enough to fully understand what they had done and really reckoned with and atoned for and made amends for all of the harm that they were responsible for. So that's the shame. And so that's sort of the way I feel about all this stuff. Like, I mean, myself as well. Like, I'm I'm a human being. I am not yet a divinely enlightened Buddha, you know? And so I'm, I'm doing my best to hopefully uh, help all sentient beings uh, be as as happy as they can and as little suffering as possible uh yeah it was pretty cool man well i appreciate it mike kaplan thank you thanks man i appreciate you doing this i appreciate you thank you so much all right man take it easy you as well there you have it folks me and mike kaplan hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as i did like i said very engaging i mean we dive deep as you, as you listen to uh, religion, social cultural norms within the realm of comedy and so much more. Very funny dude, intelligent dude. Like I said in the intro, made me feel pretty stupid, but uh, he's great. Be sure to check him out at the Comedy Vault in Batavia, Illinois. Tonight, starting tonight, Thursday, December 30th. He'll be there at 7.30 p.m. Then he's got two shows on New Year's Eve, 7 p.m. and 9.30 p.m. And then January 1st of 2022, he's got a 7 p.m. show. That is a Saturday. Be sure to check him out. Like I said, Comedy Vault Batavia. You can go to their website and get tickets now. Do it. I'll, I'll even let you pause it to go and do it and then come back and listen to the rest of this. You go to ComedyVaultBatavia.com to do it. Do it now. Get your tickets. Show is 21 plus like most comedy clubs across the nation. Two drink minimum applies. You're going to have a lot of fun. Come out and support the club great stuff mike kaplan is there starting tonight through the first of january 2022 
If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media at uh, Christian Hansen Show on Instagram. That is the flagship uh, source of information. You can go there. You can find out the website, ChristianHansenShow.com. Get information on all of our guests, where you can find them live, and so much more. Thank you for listening again. We are back, man. This is Christian Hansen, and this is my podcast, The Christian Hansen Show. Until next time, be well. Thank you.